Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business. Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Oh, friends, welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today's topic is the Routique story with my friend, Mike Allen. How's it going, Mike Allen? Excellent, Joe. Uh, nice to uh, be here. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you coming. So please introduce yourself and your company and where you're calling from today. Yeah, you bet. So you, as you mentioned, I'm uh, Mike Allen. I'm the CEO of a company called Routique. We're based in Canada here in, uh, in Calgary, Alberta. Sunny Calgary, right near Banff, for anyone who knows that area. And um, yeah, we're, we're a logistics and supply chain platform, software, and, and a little bit of IoT hardware. We work with a number of different companies in a number of industries, really food and, and, um, and pharma are, are probably our biggest ones, but uh, essentially we can you know, effectively help anybody move anything to anyone. And the problem we predominantly solve is the buzzword way of saying it is supply chain orchestration, but um, uh, the, the, the less buzzwordy way I stole from one of our clients in our very first meeting with them, they said, we don't want to own the trucks, we just want to act like we do. And I thought that's such a great way to, to summarize what, uh, what companies like ourselves do, which is really just take all these disparate partners that are all different business models, different ownership, different ways of operating, and, and try to make them you know sort of into a cohesive network without having to actually do the, the vertical integration model or the horizontal integration where you just go buy everybody, make them work together as one seamless unit for the purposes of that particular part of the supply chain, but also respect the fact that they're all independent businesses and they want to you know, maintain their uh, autonomy and run things the way they want from inside their operation. So. so when you say orchestration platform or act like they have the trucks, is this over the road or is this more final mile? It, it's a little of both, but it tends to be more towards the final mile. So we're more sort of distribution network down as opposed to um, sort of back up the chain. But uh, we do, you know, because of the nature of what we do, we get asked to integrate partners up and down, um, you know, all the way from the manufacturing side to, you know, retail and then even sometimes to end user customers, depending on the use case. Do you sell to people in the U.S. or into Canada or both? Both and a little bit of Europe already. So uh, obviously, so the system works regardless of the difference differences. And I mean, I don't imagine there's big differences between U.S. and Canada, but it doesn't take much, like a field or two, I imagine, right? Yeah, there's differences everywhere, really. You know, we at its core, we can probably operate anywhere. You know, where the language is read left to right, and you know, there's a few little restrictions in terms of um, you know taxation and regulatory stuff. Is always there's always little hurdles to cross when you enter a new region, but for the most part, we can just about operate anywhere from a language, taxation, currency point of view. Yeah, and that's so important. And one of the things that before we hit record, I was just talking about the changes in the going on in the world right now with, you know, stuff coming back to North America. And I think, you know, manufacturing, we don't ever think if we manufacturing, probably go down to Mexico, but I'm over here in Michigan and I can tell you, I made hundreds of trips over to Canada to see manufacturing facilities. So they do that pretty well. And that's, that's Ontario largely. But um, as we realign and bring stuff home, I think the importance of, 
U.S., Canada, and Mexico cross-border, it becomes more important. And you know we have the updated NAFTA, NAFTA 2.0, I forgot what they call it, USMC something or other. I, I looked it over, <laughs> and it's better for e-commerce. I know there's probably some upgrades to over NAFTA that we needed, but I think that's so critically important because one of the things that drives me crazy when we talk about green stuff is I think the majority of Canada's populations within the first, you know, with a hundred miles from the U S border. Right. And we should be able to trade with those people easily. Right. We should be able to, and and the idea that I get a distribution center on both sides of the border makes no sense. I should be able to get over that border without having to say, yeah, but anyway, I, I also was saying before we hit record, you're like the third person I've interviewed from Calgary. I interviewed David Lynch, who's works for Warped. He's over there in um, that's in L.A. And then I just talked to Julian Surratt, Surratt over from Atabotics. And now I'm talking to you. And I had sent a note to Lindsay over at Calgary Economic Development. I said, I'm talking to a lot of Calgary people all of a sudden. I said, so give me some stats. So these are just, well, first off, I knew this. Western Canada's inland port, one of Canada's busy and best connected airports, major express, major highways north, south, and east, west, two of North America's class one railroads, and efficient access to ocean ports, gateways to millions of customers. And also, a lot of the energy that we get comes from, I think that's north of you guys, but it's not just oil, it's also natural gas, right? You bet, yeah. And I think a lot of that goes down to Texas for refining. Correct, yeah, that's right. And And here's another thing she also said. Average of 330 days of sunshine per year, the sunniest city in, in Canada, which is funny because I, I was, one of my friends was complaining about Banff because we were talking about going there and he said, oh, I hate the dull light on the, on the hill. And I was like, well, I thought it was sunny there. <laughs> so I'm going to bitch to him now because <laughs> that was just an excuse. But it is Canada's fourth largest city. And I think it's probably the, isn't Alberta probably the most successful province right now? It's, it's had its ups and downs, obviously, with the with the volatility in the energy market. But uh, I think what's really nice right now is that we're getting more of an even-keeled kind of diversification going on. So that's lots of tech. A, yeah, ton, always been an energy powerhouse. I mean, that's, that's kind of built into our DNA from the beginning. And we've always been really entrepreneurial. I think we have the most or close to the most head offices in Canada. It's always voted consistently sort of one of the best places. to Yeah, that's another thing. So Calgary is ranked the third most livable city in the world. And by the way, I was talking to David Lynch, who's from Ireland. He was just on and he said he he loves it there. And uh, he's trying to figure out where he's going to stay in the world. And Calgary is right up there. He might end up back in Europe, but he could end up staying right there in Calgary because he loved it. And he spoke of, uh, what is it, the Stampede? Right. Just finished, yeah. Which is, what? what is Stampede? Stampede's pretty much, uh, I think it's billed as like the world's biggest outdoor show and party. It's uh, it's pretty fun. It's, uh, you know, with COVID, uh, especially all the locals here. We missed out on it for a couple of years oh, yeah. while things were shut down. And uh, so it came raging back this year. It was great. It, but it's always, uh, it's it just envelops the city. Everything, you know, you start to see people, no meetings booked during that time, people sauntering in a little later in the day, leaving a little earlier in the day, cowboy gear on all day long. Um, yeah, that's what, that's what Dave, 
David Lynch said, he goes, yeah, he goes, there's a lot of, a lot of country music uh, comes there. So also it says third most diverse city in Canada. That's going a long way because Canada is a pretty diverse place. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's like the U S it's full of immigrants. You bet. Yeah. It's really, um, I mean, you know, I've been here, I went to school on the West coast, but I've been here most of my life and obviously travel a ton, you know, I've been to a lot of different places and it's a great home base, right? I love to travel. I love to experience different cultures and parts of the world, but, uh, it's always a great place to come back to. It's a good place to build a business as well, and it's a good place to, to raise a family for sure. So, give us some give us some of your background. Where where did you grow up? Where did you go to school? Give us some career highlights before you started Routique. So, I, I started out here in Calgary. That's my most of my family's from here. Uh, you know, in, at the grandparents and great grandparents' age, emigrated from Scotland and Wales and a few in England and places like that. You know, multi generational family that lives here, and and a lot of my family still uh, lives here, although a lot of us have spread out as well. And uh, I, after high school, I went to uh, University of Victoria actually for my uh, first degree. And where's that at? Right on the coast, on the island. So just if you, if oh yeah, 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 people know Vancouver. Yeah, it's just you're almost looking back. at My Vancouver daughter got married in Squamish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it, right by Whistler. Place. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that's where I went to university. Stayed out there for a while, worked in video production, funny enough, just fell into it and loved the creative side of it. And then uh, came back to Calgary um, when I was just looking to, you know, sort of make a change or decide to do something different and heard about this World Wide Web thing that was, uh, you know, coming up. I, I had some really interesting meetings in those days with people who were saying it's the next big thing and other people who were saying, oh, it's a, one, one of the companies that I met with said it's a big dumb fad it's like the hula hoop; it'll be gone in a couple of years. So this was this was the days before it was a, a known entity. I, I saw this. Uh, it was a clip, and it was on YouTube, and it was I think it was Katie Couric and Brian Gumbel, and they kept saying, "What is this? WW dot? What is this? What is worldwide? Why is everyone saying WWW? What is this about? <laughs> it makes no sense." <laughs> and what? And, and it's funny. You're like, that wasn't so long ago. I remember when we didn't have the internet. Yeah, no, it's it's a it was a perfect time for me because I I really embrace the creative side and that's kind of what I thought I would end up doing, and then I was also coding from a pretty young age, just mostly for fun. But in those days, um, you know, I, I actually helped a, a friend's parents with their meat packing plant, right? A little piece of software to just manage the inbound. And above. I I totally totally forgot about that until years later, but that was probably my first foray into. Coding for a company was just a little mini database for um, for a, a meatpacking company in Calgary here, and uh, so when I moved back to town, and the convergence of the tech side and the creative side was just starting to to happen, that was um, you know that's kind of when I realized, okay, this is this is what I want to be doing. It's uh, it's still the the traditional sort of creative um, you know communication media side, but it's more this interactive side of things, and I. Um, I've pretty much been doing that ever since in various configurations. I probably haven't had a, you know, quote unquote real job for <laughs> since I was in my twenties. It's been this ever since. Well, I would say I I don't think we get enough credit in the business world, but what we're doing is a creative endeavor. I mean, there's no way around it. Uh, Routique is your work of art, and sometimes it might not feel that way. I'm sure, but it is your <laughs> it's your accomplishment along with your team. So. When and why did you start Routique? What problem did you see out there that you thought you could solve? Yeah, so we, I think like a lot of companies that have built something, you know, real, I guess you would say, 
we started out to solve a single problem. We didn't really start out to change the world. We just had a problem in, you know, I had a, a, a friend who was, um, you know, sort of work colleague that we were part of a group um, of entrepreneurs that meets once a month, and I was running a digital agency at the time. So my my history at the time was working with big retailers more on the retail to the to the customer side, more less so than right. the stream. And um, I had sold that business, and I was still in that group. And the I basically said, oh, I guess I shouldn't be coming here anymore. I don't have a business. I don't know what I'm going to talk about. And and they were at the time they were saying, you know, the group's a little volatile. There's lots of members coming in and out. I think you know if you leave, we might be in trouble. Stay on and just come and join us. So for about five months, uh, everyone was going, well, I have a problem with HR. I have a problem with this merger and acquisition deal I'm doing. I, and I'd be like. I don't have any problems. I'm on, I've been on the beach. I'm not doing anything right now. And then um, the the person who ultimately became the, the co-founder, uh, Scott, he was basically lamenting about all the problems he was having with his food distribution business. And more, to, it's very much what you're hearing right now, which is you know there's a demand from both ends, from the retail side and the manufacturing side, for better data, better visibility, better transparency, accountability, all those kind of things. It's very much you know, the, the don't want to own the trucks, we want to act like we do, or the, the sort of analog of take the roof off the warehouse and pretend it's mine and, and you know, I can look in there and, and see it at that high level view anytime. And so we started building basically a tool for him. Uh, and it was, it was really just because I had time and I like a challenge and, and he was, you know, sort of, I think he was saying death by a thousand cuts, you know, I know I'm blue. Oh yeah. That's, that's what it feels like. Yeah. I don't, I don't know where it's coming from, but I know it's, it's, it's gushing and, and I need more, you know, sort of traceability within the operation as well as to serve the customers that I serve. So yeah, we built a little POC. So what, what year was that? That would be 2015 that we started. And then sort of 16, we, what really happened was a couple of the big companies that we still work with today, they took notice of it. They would come for market tours and, you know, just friendly visits or, or checkups. And the very first iteration of it, they sort of patted us on the head and went, oh, isn't that cute? You know, you build your own platform. Good for you. Nice, but condescending a little bit. And, uh, and then they kept coming back on what? what is this? Like, where is this thing coming from? And um, so they asked Scott about my background and sent them a little bit of a CV with the types of companies that I was working with on the retail side. And they said, you know what, fly out and come present to us. We, we think there might be a solution here. So that's really boutique exists because the demand pulled us towards productizing a thing that was initially going to be an internal solution. And then we had that two years that everybody has where you think you have a product, but you actually don't, <laughs> you know, somewhere between MVP and something totally unusable. So MVP is minimum viable product. Correct. Yeah. And they, and then they sort of, you know, basically instead of being a little kind of cutesy condescending, they embraced us and said, okay, let's see what we can do with this thing together. And that's really what drove I'm it. assuming you're also adding fields and a little bit of capability week after week, just kind of, well, improving this, improving that. And then, you know, so it wasn't the original product wasn't complete and it never is. Yeah, it bears no resemblance to what it did in those days. And, um, you know, I actually wrote the first iteration myself and now, you know, our team doesn't let me touch the keys to the production servers, right? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a dinosaur in terms of the actual... Uh, the way that platforms are developed now and that kind of thing. So, I mean, I full credit to our team. I, I We'd never be where we were if it wasn't for our first few strategic hires that went, you know, you're doing a lot of things right. Good mm -hmm. for you. 
but mostly you're doing everything wrong and, uh, you know, hire better people than yourselves. And that's really kind of what's got us where we are. So this orchestration platform, you sell that to who? Retailers, e-commerce companies, 3PLs? Yeah, I mean, it's a little of everything. And so it's the use case is slightly different depending on who's knocking at the door. But I mean, most of those companies are wanting better integration with their other partners up and down the chain. So no matter who who brings us in, it's typically working with their other partners. But mo- for the most part, it's a manufacturer who brings us in. It's somebody who's, who's wanting to ship and then who's wanting to fulfill through 3PL partners who brings us in initially. Yeah, and it's interesting. You didn't say it, but I know you've been in, impacted by it. We all are using consumer tech, you know, whether it be Amazon or eBay or the stuff on our phones, the things that Lyft, Uber, whatever they might be. And when you see that and you go, that t- that's telling me the car is two minutes from my house or the car is here. And then you go to the office and somebody who has you know a million dollars worth of freight says, I can't see my freight. You're like, wait a sec. I know it's doable and they know it's doable. And I helped some large 3PL or large shippers select 3PLs. And so I remember hearing from a lot of large 3PLs, carriers, et cetera. And they always joke about it. They go, every time you're in a meeting with a big shipper, they say, I don't know where my freight is, but when I order toothpaste from Amazon, they deliver it next morning. And I know every step of the way, but I don't know where my freight is. And so it feels to me like uh, the cons- not only were you dragged maybe by the demands of potential customers, but also that consumer tech that's just showing us the way on this. They were there first, it felt like. Yeah, every, I mean, people sometimes forget when they're selling to enterprises, and we had to get you know good at that as well as a, as a team. But, I mean, there are just people, right? I mean, if you think of your client as the company name and, and that's it, you're probably in trouble. You're servicing the people that work at, on the other end of the, of the phone in that company, and they're all, they all shop at those places, and they've all experienced that. The, the other thing that I've always found really interesting is, you know, back in, in the old days when I would order something, and it would be four to six weeks. I'd be like, yeah, that sounds right. That's that's what it takes, right? right. Um, <laughs> nowadays, um, we've talked about this a lot with, with our clients, with our colleagues is, you know, and I've done it myself. It's so counterintuitive and silly, but there's a product I don't need tomorrow. But I order it and I find out there's an option to get it next week or to get it tomorrow. And it's $4 more and I'll get it tomorrow. And I don't even need it tomorrow. So it's they've Amazon's not only raised the bar on visibility, but they've, They've basically taught the world that, you know, that this sort of quicker delivery and the better visibility is actually, um, you know, sort of marketable. It's not just cost savings. It's actually beneficial from a customer point of view. And you can actually build a moat around it and, and, and really sort of defend it. Somebody said to me the other day on my podcast, and I can't verify this. No one gave me any stats that when people get stuff same day, next day, it's less likely to be returned. I don't know if that's true or not, but I'll just throw this out there. Let's just say your wife says we're going out to dinner and she orders you a nice sweater and she says, it's here, put it on. <laughs> you wore it. Now you're not going to return it. Yeah. Well, and there's some, you know, just anecdotally, our team, one of them ordered a standing desk for home during during the COVID crisis. It came broken. They phoned the company. The company said, oh, just keep it. It's too much expense to send it back. We'll send you another one. 
they actually gave that second desk to one of our other colleagues here. They put a new top on it because it was the top that was broken. So, it, you know, even, even the idea that they're building in the idea that they really don't want to do returns unless they have to. I did a podcast, not published yet. It'll be published before this one, though. And it's about returns. And I called the podcast e-commerce's dirty little secret. And the dirty little secret is not little anymore. It's big. 30%, up to 30% of e-commerce purchases are returned. And certain things aren't worth returning, right? So if I sent something that, you know, I'll just throw it out there like underwear. <laughs> and and you said, Joe, this underwear that you sold me is horrible. I hate it. I'm not going to say, we'll send it back. No, thanks. Just, just keep it, right? There's certain <laughs> things that you don't want back. Other things, if it showed up damaged, send it back to me. It could be a purse that's worth retail $800. I will replace the button on it or whatever um, and resell it. So there's a million different stories, but we don't manage it well. And I would say sizing, well, we've talked about this before on my podcast, probably too much, bracketing. If I was going to buy a sweater, I might buy, I might, I know my daughters do this. They get a few sizes and a few colors and they try them all on like they're in a changing room and send at least two of the three back, maybe all three. Absolutely. I mean, even the, even and we've trained example. people that it's okay. Yeah. The desk example, the rationale that the company used was you, you're, we know how people put things together. So the fact that only one part was broken, we're pretty sure you ruined the rest of it when you put it together. You stripped all the screws, you stripped all the little Allen nuts, you bent, you know, like they basically, by trying to assemble it and getting all the way to the final stage, made it infeasible to sell it anyway. So, um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of, it's interesting how the goalposts have changed. And, you know, if you ask somebody 15, 20 years ago, you know, if you could get it two days from now or five days from now, would you pay extra they'd be like five days is fine now people are actually going i'll get the one i don't want as much because i can get it today instead of tomorrow well one of the things during the pandemic that changed is we started getting groceries through e-commerce delivery so so i don't want my i want groceries i need them today same day right what's interesting is i think it was timberland boots somebody said on my podcast i can't verify this but timberland boots said if you give us a week to deliver them we'll plant a tree in your name. And I think it was up to 40% of the people said, yeah, that sounds good. Go ahead and do that. I don't need them right away. And it's on brand. And so I think in some ways we're going to have to re-educate consumers. First off, the companies that are selling us stuff online are going to have to do better with sizing. I say this all the time. I guess I'll say it one more time. When I was at my mom's house, she's watching Home Shopping Network. And she said, they do such a good job. And if you watch Home Shopping Network, they'll have a lady out there and she'll be wearing a blouse or a dress or whatever. She says, I'm five foot five and 160 pounds. And this is this size and it fits me great. Then another lady walks on, I'm five foot nine, 120 pounds. And this fits me great. So you get the sizing. And my mom said, she goes, I bought a pair of pants on there. And as soon as I bought them, I liked the way they fit, bought three more. We don't do that with our sizing online. So we got to do a better job so we don't have those enormous amounts of returns. Well, I mean, that's the crux of it. All of that stuff you're mentioning is one of the reasons why we exist. Because, you know, people think of, I get told all the time, oh, the shipping's free. I'm like, there's no no such thing as free shipping. That doesn't exist. (laughs) Someone's paying for it, right? And, uh, you know, we were calling it the, the distributor squeeze for a while there. It's just like, you know, when you're in the middle of that chain, 
that pain is transferred to you because the customer assumes that everything is free from the fulfillment side. You know, the, there's a certain margin in the product to begin with that just, you know, belies the fact that you can't charge whatever you want for shipping and still make it work. So someone's actually getting kind of crushed in that transaction. And I've always said for every time you hear, hear free shipping or same day next day, a venture capitalist gets a gray hair. <laughs> <laughs> There's, it's not free. <laughs> no, it's, it's, um, I, I spoke at a conference in Florida, Future of uh, Logistics, I believe it's called, uh, a couple of years ago, but just like just before COVID. And um, I made a point on stage early in the morning. And, and uh, when they wrapped up at the end of the day, they actually said it again. They said one of the favorite points they heard today was something I said, and it was off the cuff. But I said, you know, we have to figure out how to. And companies like my, like ourselves, like like the, the the suppliers and the partners and the tech companies and the, and the enablers have to figure out how to make supply chain, uh, you know, sort of a, a value add to the top line as opposed to a cost savings thing. It's so much of, and even you know us, we're not getting our foot in the door unless we help you save money. That's that's a that's a price of entry. If we can't help you coordinate your operations and and you know sort of make it more efficient. We're not going to get a seat at the table. But after that, the question, you know, once you start to show some savings on the bottom line, then it's like, what can we do with this to create a competitive advantage, build a bit of a moat, you know, use it as a sort of a marketing and sales tool. And and they said that's really kind of sums up what they were trying to accomplish because otherwise it's a race to the bottom, right? If everyone's just trying to get to zero. I can tell you this, um, I very, very large shipper, they spent like 70, 80 million a year, asked me to help them select a 3PL. And I was part of a team. They had an internal team. I was part of it. And I was a great group of guys. And what was interesting is I was working with a purchasing team. And the purchasing team said, our top priority is cost. Our second priority is cost. Our third priority. So I remember I had a PowerPoint slide by running. This is my, it's my charter. And then they switched. And there was a new VP of logistics. And I remember he said, I'm not from logistics but I do run another division that uses this logistics. I'm the vice president of that division. And he said, we have a problem. And he says, what's your, what's your charter? So I was pull up my slides as a good consultant. And I showed him, he says, so you're telling me that the goal is to reduce the cost of something that nobody's happy with right now. And I said, well, I didn't, was it my, <laughs> that was what I was told to get. And he goes, we lose business because of our logistics. I'm going to tell you, we need to win business because of our logistics. And it was a little bit embarrassing because I thought to myself, I'm the consultant, I'm the expert. I should have said that. But I didn't feel empowered to say it to the purchasing guys who were really brought me on to save money. But he was absolutely right. And they started off saying this has to be much, much better. But over time, they reduced the cost, I believe. Or at least got it right, whatever, everybody's got a budget. But I think, to your point, we should look and say, how do we get the logistics guy so we can add more value? And I think it's going to be with data. I also think we're going to wade into the inventory more. You mentioned inventory. We, the cost of logistics is usually less than the carrying cost for goods. So if we can get better at helping somebody manage their inventory, we've earned our keep. Yeah. Yeah. And same for tech companies, right? I mean, all the tools we employ from, you know, artificial intelligence and machine learning to the IOT devices that we, we deploy as part of the platform to third party ones that we ingest, you know, to all of those tools are, you know, it's always interesting to see a company that sells, 
it's like a tech first sales versus a benefits first sale because who cares about I mean AI is one of probably one of the most sort of world shaping powerful forces there is right now but if you're selling AI who's buying right you what is it going to do for you what is it going to achieve um, and it has to be you know in one of those categories you mentioned it has to be of benefit to the organization and inventory is a great one like we're dealing with a lot of 3PLs right now who the way they're selling in terms of the the equation of the storage on hand that the the the, the, the customer wants versus the turns on inventory is completely out of whack because everybody's terrified now of just in time and they're trying to have more safety stock but they're pushing a lot of inventory into these smaller um, sort of micro fulfillment type operations and then they're wondering why it's more difficult and more expensive to pick. And so, you know, the and the, the, the 3PLs are afraid to, to tell the customer, we don't want that much stock. But when we go in and go, you know, it's, it's more of a vendor managed inventory approach. It's like how we, we don't want anything more than you need. You, we don't want you to pay us any more than what we need to make to fulfill every order perfectly. There's a right number in there. That's the one we would like to have on hand, not 10 times that or, or 15 times that. Yeah, exactly. So, Mike, when just so we understand better what Routique does. And I should also mention, go ahead and spell Routique for us so people know. <laughs> we get that a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's R-O-U-T-E-I-Q-U-E. There's a, yeah, we get, why is the E in there? We get... Um, so I mentioned so we could go Route Q, <laughs> Route Q. Yeah, <laughs> we, we get Route Aquai, we get Route IQ. So it's get, the word yeah. Route and then I-Q-E. So take us through, and don't mention any names if you can't, but take us through like a really positive case study that you had. Somebody coming to you with a problem, walk us through that. What was their problem? What was the solution? Yeah, I mean, you know, probably one of our largest and longest standing clients was really an issue of working with a network of around 30, I think at the time it was about 37 partners across Canada, across the country. And, and you know, Canada and the U.S. are, are similar in, in terms of, the issues we face versus, say, Europe or, or, or Asia, where there's more density. But Canada is much worse off than the U.S. So it's right, one of those, if you right. can do it here, you can do it anywhere. Because we've got, as you mentioned at the beginning, so few people versus one of you know the largest land mass for a country. By the way, I just was listening to a book, and it said the U.S. population could double without any sort of difficulty in density. And Canada... <laughs> Could probably quadruple. Oh, yeah, easy. Make more, I'm yeah. sure. Yeah. Of course, yeah. some of them are going to have to live in some cold places. So it's going to be hard to convince the people who move from warm places. Yeah, we need you to go a little north of uh, Alberta. <laughs> but well, for, for anyone who doesn't know Canada, it's interesting. Look at a nighttime satellite photo and look where the lights are. Yes. Um, you <laughs> you, know, got, a, just, you it, got a blank spot there. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it almost defines the border. And, and uh, you know, it's very far north because it's a very big country. But uh, you've. Tr- you have the Toronto, which is GTA, Greater Toronto, and then you have out west, you have that, and then very little else. I tell people this. I drove to Halifax to see my old roommate. Never drive from Detroit to Halifax. Just too damn far. It's like 30 hours. But when I left Montreal, I remember him telling me, when you leave Montreal, fill your tank every gas station you see. And I was like, that's like 300 miles. Like I, <laughs> I was like, that's... That's not necessary. And he goes, yeah. you're not going to see that many gas stations. Literally ran out of gas at a gas station. That's how empty it is between Montreal and the Maritimes, Halifax and 
PEI. But anyway, what kind of company were you talking about that have these 37 partners? Are they retailer? Are they manufacturer? What do they huge do? Huge manufacturer. Yeah, huge manufacturer. And, um, and these are suppliers into that manufacturing facility? Mostly they're downstream, so distribution okay. to DCs, um, yep. yeah, the DCs and then the, the sort of local market distributors that get it out to, to retail typically. And, um, you know, again, because of the nature of Canada and the way it is, you're dealing with some other juggernauts, like in the middle uh, uh, sort of tier there, some other huge companies, some of which are manufacturers that also help distribute other products. And you're dealing with, you know, Ned's Trucking from Thunder Bay, Ontario. That's not a real one, but <laughs> but to give you an example. So you've got operations that have, you know, three to five trucks and a 10,000 foot warehouse all the way up to massive ones. And the issue for them was, it's it's that own the truck, don't want to own the trucks, but want to act like we do. It was basically, how do we orchestrate this ragtag band of companies into a seamless network? Yeah, they didn't want to use 20 different systems for 37 yeah. different companies. So they said... And that's actually what they told us at the beginning, you know, in the early days of the platform where it wasn't very mature, they were like, there's probably nothing that we can't do that you guys do right now. We just need eight or nine vendors and a bunch of integrations and we don't want to do that. So um, now I'd say we're a lot more powerful, but the premise is the same. I mean, there's a lot of good platforms out there and there's a lot of good software out there. I think our, our value prop is, um, you know, the, the sort of end-to-end management of the operation that can work as a standalone in a small SME that can also fit in a larger network with other tech stacks. So was the manufacturer, they were selling to these distributors or were they just... Both, because they were selling, uh, so they're selling product to distributors in a buy-sell type relationship and then they're reselling it and they're also doing corporate order delivery. So were they them. responsible for the transportation costs or not? It, it's all, yeah, it's built all, in all over the place. The okay. So, yeah. so you had all these different, all these different trucking companies, carriers that they were working with. And what you guys said is from now on, we're going to use one system. That's, yeah, that's basically how it happened is that it was an endorsed solution initially, and then it became kind of an enforced solution. Uh, once they reached a critical mass of adoption, they basically said, okay, well, you you have to be on the platform. And then what's happened since then is a lot of those companies, most of them have, they were using it for that one use case, and now they're using it for the whole business. They were yeah. using it for the middle mile, and now they're using it for the final mile. Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, and now we're doing the similar thing with warehouses too, with one, with one of our um, brewing clients. We're sort of in there, um, sort of re- helping revamp the operation, not just from a, a software side, but from a process side so that they can actually do more 3PL for it. So they're a manufacturer by trade, but they're also doing 3PL work for other manufacturers, which is a bit newer to them. So, yeah, I, I think the, you know, the the high level value prop and, and use cases is always the same, although it's completely different at when the rubber meets the road, depending on who they are and what part of the, the chain they're in. Interesting. So you, you mentioned process and uh, here in the U.S. we always call it process, but I've worked with a lot of Canadians in the in Detroit and they would always say, it's not process, it's process. And, and, I'd say, <laughs> and I was like, it's pro- process over here. They're like, do you ever hear of a hockey pra or is it a hockey pro and i was like i think you guys got me there so anyway um getting back to it with those dcs that so they so now i have one system that's managing all of it but what about the do you also get into the warehouse management and the order management and what's the difference between warehouse management and order management well the the order management you know that when we usually get a call is when there's complexity in the capture and processing part of the order notwithstanding what happens in the warehouse so like 
you've got operations where they're trying to, they're pulling in corporate orders from SAP, from other ERP platforms. They've got an order portal that is, either is or isn't working. And then they sometimes, especially with COVID, they've got more of a consumer level order portal for direct to customer orders like Shopify or something like that. Uh, they're selling on Amazon through, through uh, some of the Amazon tools. So they've got all these methods of injecting orders. And a lot of times from the order management side, they're coming to us when they go, okay, well, we've been managing all these as separate silos and it completely falls apart on the fulfillment side because one has sold stock, the other one didn't realize it was already sold and, and they're not you know, necessarily fulfilling out of the right center. I, I've even had that with some of the consumer things that I bought where you know, I bought an item and six weeks later it hadn't come and they told me I had to cancel it and reorder it because the system was locked to a particular fulfillment center and they didn't have it anymore and they couldn't do a stock transfer from one to the other. So, so they so they had multiple inputs to their to their system and they didn't know how to manage it. So your order system was able to consolidate and put that into a process that went from order management to warehouse management to transportation management in effect. Yeah, exactly. And that distributor model lends itself really well to that because they'll be, you know, sort of buy-sell distributing for a number of suppliers, contract distributing for a number of suppliers. They sometimes have their own clients and they have independent farm-to-table, you know, type products in the food space. And what would happen from the big manufacturers, they'd inject, you know, say 16 orders into a route or eight orders into a route for the distributor and then wonder why they couldn't get full visibility into the transportation side because they're mixing those orders with their co-loading and they're mixing with other products. And I'm assuming that once you have that transportation and it's delivered and there's a proof of delivery, that information flows back the other way to the order management system. So when they check and say, hey, Mike, you ordered this, this, and this, and they can look in their order and say, yes, it was delivered on this date and here's the signature. Yeah, and we tackled that delivery side. That was one of the first things we tackled is, uh, you know, I mentioned the bookend approach, the, the injection and the processing of the orders and the pre-processing of the orders and then the delivery side. And that's how the warehouse side really came to be, uh, you know, what it is today is clients going, well, we can't see anything in the middle. <laughs> like we, we don't know what's happening inside those, those centers, whether they're small sort of local final mile distribution centers or whether they're bigger DCs. So, yeah, we know when it came in, we know when it left, what happened to it in the meantime? Is there damages? Is there out of stock? You know, are we sitting on too much inventory? Are we not ordering soon enough? You know, what are those? It's it's getting into that sort of automated vendor managed inventory side where they're like, we don't really want to have to keep track of this stuff and, 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 you know, send stock down to you. We'd like to sort of have you auto PO, but we'd like to have those numbers be accurate. And Mike, we all know about same day, next day, and it's, I know it's a requirement in a lot of different places, a lot of different businesses. We can't have same day, next day if we can't get the systems to talk to each other and for us to be able to make good decisions. And then whether you're retail or e-commerce, if you can't look at your data and tell whether you're making money on a regular basis, on a daily basis, you're probably not making money. That's the problem. And when you're carrying inventory and... I think we've all seen the the little chart that you guys make that has the SKU count. So you envision a chart, guys, that's got the highest selling SKUs, and then there's this long tail at the bottom that has very few. And those are the problem ones on the low where you say, I got 16 SKUs that make up 80% of my business, and then I have 35 other ones that make up 20%. And that's the challenge we all run into in business is 
how do I get rid of those skews? And I did hear this. I don't know. This is just direct directionally. I think it's directionally correct. During the pandemic, some retailers made the observation that we carry a ton of inventory. So when I go to buy peanut butter, there's 27 different kinds. Some of the retailers learned that if I had six kind, we sell more peanut butter. And I think we all like choices, but sometimes you walk over to the peanut butter or the pickles and you go, God dang, I just wanted some sweet pickles. Is it that hard? And by the way, I don't know if these all exist in Canada, but I'm sure you guys are aware. Costco, very few SKUs, great business. Um, Trader Joe's, fewer SKUs. Aldi, fewer SKUs. So these are, and by the way, Aldi, which always is much less expensive than other stores, they have much fewer SKUs and great stores. And so I think that a lot of people are going to be looking at this inventory problem we have. And by the way, there's been people on my podcast who said, 30% of what we make never gets sold, which means at some point it's that magenta sweater, the the 800 of them that you have on the shelf, no one bought them. (laughs) And I mean, you think about the use case with a sweater, as detrimental as that is, think about milk, cheese, meat, seafood. I mean, the, the, the combination of the sort of potential to damage the product in transit or storage and then the code date issue makes it, you know, and the fact that some of that product is worth a, a small fortune makes it a really big problem. And what we're really seeing right now is companies, because they want more safety stock and because they're producing whatever they want to produce, they can't find any place to put it. And so they're trying to ram it into these kind of final mile centers that are they're usually smaller footprint. They're meant to turn fast. That's really their job. And because a lot of those companies are a little bit more traditional and they're going, well, we can take a deal where we can get you know, 2,000 pallets instead of 300 pallets of storage, and they sell the storage. They don't make a lot of storage typically. It's it's not a it's not a really sort of high margin business, and you fill the warehouse with things that don't move because the customer was too timid to allow the or the or the 3PL wasn't able to technically able to do the analysis. So we find that we're doing a lot of that with our platform and going the right amount is in 2,000. It's 375. And here's the mix based on the SKUs. And here's the ones we don't want. Let's just kind of drop ship those based on orders. And let's have a higher turnaround time for those. Because you're selling one of them every six months. Um, but you're, you're storing 150 pallets with us, right? Mike, I think we're right. You just started to describe it. But we're right in the beginning. You know, there's a beginning, a middle, and end of everything. But I think we're just at the beginning of having really good data where we can start to make those decisions that inform our inventory choices and I think we will see certain places that say, you know, God, could we just cut down the skew count? Unless we really know we're going to sell it, let's not make it. Because we're, I think most companies are looking and saying we have an ESG goal. And and you mentioned the foodstuffs. I had Lineage, Lineage Logistics, which is one of the largest food logistics. I mean, they do mostly food, I think. And what they want to get to is if I have food that I think is in excess of what I'm going to use for these retail locations, let's just say it's Kroger, one of the big retailers, inform them and say, can we give this to a food bank? And you don't want to give them food that's spoiled. You want to be able to say, this is going to spoil in the next week. Can we give this to a food bank right now? And by the way, what if we don't give it to a food bank, we're going to have to dispose of it at our cost. And 
feel like idiots on top of that. Yeah, there's, I mean, you're, you're taking an economic problem and a social and an environmental problem and mushing them all together into a terrible one. And, and you know, we've seen, none of our clients, but we've actually seen like produce where, you know, produce was being disposed of and, and it was ended up being covered by the news. Uh, these big giant dumps of perfectly edible food and it came back as a huge backlash and it was, you know, really nothing intentional. It was just, right. it had no, to of be course disposed not. of. Yeah, but it, it can create huge problems. And you think of the supply chain, disposing of produce means I used water, I used fertilizer, I used labor, I used my land, and then I trucked it. And then at some point I said, throw it out. That's expensive problem to have. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, the ultimate solution is is a, like a perfectly sort of perfect visibility and perfect fulfillment in the market, so that you don't dispose of anything. But I mean, it's always going to be something. But it begins. Right? It begins with the connectivity that you just talked about, and it begins begins with data and being able to have those insights. Not after it happens. Not not somebody goes. Hey, I got the report about the fruit we dumped. Right. Yeah. I want that to, uh, a month before that says, hey. Here's what we're seeing. Let's let's slow down, or let's let's talk to some other people about selling this, or let's donate it. But for God's sakes, let's not dump it. Yeah, and having that information is key, and having it be accurate is key. And um, you know, all of the issues you mentioned are all it takes is one one metric, one KPI to be off, one bit of information to be lagging. You know, people talk about the bullwhip effect, but it's not it's not just that sort of bullwhip effect in terms of the, the amount of simple. stock on hand. It's, you know, that nobody realized that the, 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 a lot of the product that was on hand was was going out of code date in six days uh, inside the 3PL, say, for example. And, you know, everybody has that information, but they're not their the systems aren't talking necessarily. So that's where the. Yeah, that information is just not at hand. So, Mike, let's wrap this bad boy up. But before we do, you can answer in any order you want. So what's next for you, Mike Allen? What's next for Routique? And then what's next for this industry that we just talked about, which is this really this middle mile, final mile, and all the stuff in between? Yeah, (laughs) I think, I mean, what's next for me is uh, we've got a lot of gas in the tank. We've got a ton of, you know, we get people calling all the time. I think most tech companies are going, do you want to be bought? Do you want to be bought? We, we have a vision. We have a roadmap. We're following it. You know, we're at least in this thing for another few years before we would sort of do something much bigger, depending on what that would be. And and this is what I love to do. Um, you know, people always go, when are you going to retire? Or what, 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 I'm like, I don't see myself doing that. And people keep, a lot of my friends are older than me and they're going, oh, you'll change. And I'm like, I don't know that I will. I really like you know, if I'm sitting on the beach and relax, that's when my brain starts to have time to think of some fun new thing to try. So I think it makes sense to repot yourself. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't see. I mean, I, I, it's, it's such a stupid cliche, but I really do love what I do, and and a lot of our team loves what we do, and we're we're quite close, both you know, sort of professionally and and socially, and. Uh, I, I would I would want to keep doing something like this regardless. But uh, from the company point of view. Uh, we're doing another couple of acquisitions that we're working on right now that will uh, see us be significantly larger, more into that sort of services and professional services side. I think that's our big epiphany with COVID is that this industry is notoriously difficult to just sell software to. That No one knows what to do with it and no one knows how to align their processes 
processes with the software. <laughs> so that that's really kind of where we're moving, and and um, you know a ton more AI, a ton more machine learning, a lot more ingestion of IoT data. So it's it's you know we have the brain now. We're trying to kind of grow the brain, grow its capabilities, but we're also trying to ingest more from the senses. Right? What else can we take in that we can uh, use to provide better predictions? And I think you know that's probably dovetails pretty well with where the industry is going. I think that people are realizing now that, and, and our clients have said this to us, we're not in the business we thought we were in. You know, we're in a totally different business. And what we're really in is a sort of a data-driven insight business. It, when you think of the way that this downstream side, uh, you know, this distribution network side works, a lot of those those companies are the face of the, com- of the supplier to the customer. They're the only ones that ever interact with them in anything other than math than marketing. So, you know, there it's, it's the realization that A, it has to be a, a you know, a, a profit center as well as a cost uh, center, and it has to be managed for, you know, creating more top line uh, revenue than just saving money on the bottom. Mike, as more and more stuff becomes done automatically through AI, ML, I, I, I speak of it as magic, but as more of the routine tasks are taken over by automation and systems, we're going to have to find new ways to add value. Otherwise, margins just come down. And, we're out. We, and I don't think that's where we're headed. I think where we're headed is, you mentioned the professional services. I think just becoming a little more like data scientists. And right now we're giving people information reports and we're doing the best we can, but it's still very disconnected. So, yeah. and the challenge with supply chains is I can have local optimums. I can say, oh, I've got my warehouse humming. Well, yeah, you've you've driven the transportation costs up. Oh, okay. I've got my transportation costs really low. Well, that's because there's tons of extra warehouse problems that you caused. So we need to get that supply chain from order to cash. Yeah. And we need to get it tighter and tighter. And I think the information that's required is, I think we have a, a you mentioned a roadmap. I think we have a roadmap of all of those IoT points, all of those data points that we're going to say, here's all the information. I think we're going to be able to feed it into th- those wonderful AI ML models and say, tell me what to do. And I think we'll, speak, we'll need fewer and fewer of us to do it, but I think it's um, it's going to be a long time before we have all those data points. Well, and, you know, we talk about like platform people and process and, and you know, the people is a forgotten part. It, you know, the driver shortage and the, and the work shortage of warehouse workers is, you know, we, we people, have, we've done this to ourselves because, if you tell a driver they're not going to have a job in 10 years because of autonomy, and then you go, why does no one want to be a driver anymore? Um, you have to have a path just like you do for the company, just like you do for the organization. Right. You have to have a path for the people. They can't be seen as being entering a dead-end career or staying in a dead-end career. They have to have mobility, and that's probably going to be we, – we, our, our mantra is uh, you know, they're creating the, the, the next generation of supply chain visionaries and, and – uh, you know, we talk about x-ray vision for supply chain visionaries is our tagline. And, and that's, you know, there's two sides to that. The x-ray vision side, that whole, you know, that better visibility, transparency, accountability. But it's the visionary side. It's like, who are these people going to be? Are they going to be the the same type of people now who sort of see this as a potential, as a dead-end career while they're looking for something else? Are we going to create that next generation of people who are passionate about the industry and, and where it's going? Right. And it's interesting. I had the guys from Softy on, Dan Gilmore, on my podcast, and he talked about one of, I think it was Sherman Williams, the paint company, said we never had anyone retire out of our warehouse. Well, it's hard work. And 
I'm an automotive guy and I saw for many years in automotive how we got better and better at making those jobs in the assembly plants, manufacturing plants, better jobs where at one time those guys be on their knees or bent over or crouched over doing an operation over their head. And it sounds fine when you're 25 years old. By the time you're my age, you're a broken down mess. So we have to create great jobs that don't kill people in those. And I mean, I mean, we're literally killing people in warehouses. But if you had a son or daughter who said, I want to go work in a warehouse and it's high tech and I'm using this great equipment and I'm, I'm, I'm using these insights to make better decisions, they're part of the supply chain versus being a strong back. And I think this is, we also have to have, you know, we have this college model where you either go to college or you start working in a warehouse. We've got to get out of that. We've got to have a way to bring people from the bottom floor to the top floor. And I, I, I'm, I'm so, I went to school at night for 19 years to get my undergrad, my master's, not a good plan. (laughs) I had lots of experience by the time I graduated, but not a good plan. And I think this is the challenge. You mentioned people not wanting to go in the business. We not only had a driver shortage during this time, we had dock workers, warehouse workers, anybody. And by the way, I know of a warehouse that's, they raised all their rates and then they started saying, if you want to come in on the weekend, because you have childcare, if you want to come in after hours, they just opened up the, their schedule and said, whatever works. Yeah. And we're going to have to start looking at it. We're going to have a labor shortage here. We're going to have it for a while as the baby boomers retire. And, uh, and by the way, some of us baby boomers aren't going away because you'll need them. But some of us got nothing else to do. <laughs> I'm going to tail end of that. We'll see where this is going and, and you know, like the... The, the, we, we get to see that interesting side. It's like any sort of a consultant or anything, right? You get to see into all these operations. When you're in your own operation, you have blinders on to a certain degree. When you're a company like, like you know, what you do or what we do, and you see all these different use cases in these different organizations, you get a nice appreciation of the bigger picture. So you see the problems in more, uh, uh, more of a macro level, but you also see the solutions. And you know, we're doing things like partnering with post-secondary institutions to create micro-credentials courses, courses for intelligent warehousing, intelligent there you education. Go. That's what we need. You know, we're we're trying to put our money where our mouth is and going. It is, you know, one of the mantras that I've always used since the beginning that seems to go over well is we're not trying to create uh, Terminator. We're trying to create Iron Man. We're not trying to eliminate people. We're trying to augment them, give you the the heads up display. Oh and, yeah, you know, the tools and the weaponry to make to, to make your job better and easier, not get rid of you. That's that's counterproductive for sure. So, one last thing before you go, Mike. What I'll do is I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile. I'll put a link to Rutique's website and any other links you give me. But before you go, who's kind of your ideal customer, the sweet spot for you? Yeah, to me, you know, again, this is going to sound like a cop out, but it's not the the sort of corporate demographic side of how big they are, although we do like world's biggest. We have a couple of those in the, in the category as clients right now. But to us, it's a client, it's the people at the operation and the culture that really make it uh, because it makes it fun for us when they are stretching, when they're reaching, when they're trying to accomplish more. And so, yeah, I mean, obviously there's customers who come in and go, I have a burning fire. I got to put it out. It is a cost savings. It is an efficiency play. Those are great. We'll do those all day long. And usually, you know, that gives us, that, that kind of gives us, um, you know, ingratiates us with those customers and lets us do more. But the, the favorite ones of mine are the ones who are like, there's got to be more than this, right? Like there's got to be more than price of entry. What else can we do with this? And the ones that drive us, because we're pretty far out there, you know, tech people are, 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 are reaching and they're always trying to find the next big thing. 
when I get a customer that surprises me, you know, how, how would we, could we use the, the, the drones that you guys have to actually measure our inventory in real time? Could we do this? Could we do that? You know, those are interesting challenges, right? So they're not necessarily the best ones for business because they're harder to solve and you have to invest a lot in R&D. But I, when I see a customer that's trying to, to reinvent things and not just trying to go along, those are those are my favorite ones. Yep. My, my old boss, Craig Wynn, his former vice president at Chrysler, he had like 10,000 of us working for him. But years later, he bought an engineering company and I, and I went to work with him. And I remember him saying, we need more RTGs. And I was like, what is an RTG? And he goes, right thinking guys. <laughs> and I remember we would walk out of a meeting. He goes, those are right thinking guys. They're the ones we work with. <laughs> and it was, a, it was not easily defined, but you just kind of described that perfectly. Our people, right? That's all you can really work with. Uh, I, I have a, my brother-in-law always says, he's over at Sun Interactive. And he always says, Hey, we got limited time. We only want to be part of good stories. <laughs> so, so if we can par- be part of a good story with those guys, good. I don't, I don't have time to be part of bad stories. Yeah, no, it, it. I mean, to me, it, it, again, it's not the most investor friendly or or way of saying it, but it, it money is great, right? Returns are great, but I mean, if it's if it's fun and it's challenging, I mean, that's what typically gets our team up in the morning. And you know, I, I have no illusions that. You know, there's lots of other companies out there with bigger, deeper pockets than we have that could steal people away if they were at all unhappy. So if the team is happy, if they're challenged, you know, if they're waking up every day with the right balance of like, it's not burning to the ground, but I don't know how we're going to solve this. Today's going to be a new day and I'm not sure how we're going to do this. That's what really keeps people. Yeah, and, and there's, and they're in Calgary where the sun always shines and there's stampede yeah. once a year. So what the hell? <laughs> no, it, it is a phenomenal place to get, you know, we have a number of our team. One's actually, I just uh, checked today. She, she and her husband are uh, in uh, Dawson city right now. They're heading towards Tuktoyaktuk. We have other ones who are out in the back country. We have, uh, it's pretty much the perfect place to, you know, you're an hour away from paradise at any given moment. And so you can do that balance of, you know, hit it hard and then get away, work hard, and play hard. I guess. That sounds very attractive for those of us near the cities. It, totally. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much, Mike. I really appreciate you taking the time. No, it was awesome. I really appreciate it. And yeah, I'd love to, you know, anyone feel free to reach out anytime. I'm happy to talk to anyone who wants to me, talk to me. So. And thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support's very much appreciated. Until next time, Onward and Upward. You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversation with experts in the logistics field. For more details, visit thelogisticsoflogistics.com or follow Joe Lynch on LinkedIn.